What's going on, everybody? Back again for another episode of Hockey Talk with Ryan Hawk. And today's guest is Andy Sutton. Andy stopped by to talk about going undrafted, his thoughts on hockey media, how he would have handled the PLD saga as a teammate, his 600-game career, and what he's up to now as a CEO of Verbero. And this episode is also brought to you by Verbero Hockey. Verbero Hockey has been making top-tier equipment for over a decade, and it boasts the lightest stick on the market, the only full carbon fiber skate, a partnership with KAV Helmets, and the most robust team store software in the sporting landscape. Verbero is owned by 15-year NHL veteran Andy Sutton, and utilizes both Andy's engineering education and his years spent in the game at the highest level to ensure that every Verbero product is top shelf. And guys, as we know, you always want to go top shelf. Verbero sells at player direct pricing to everyone, allowing affordability and innovation to remain at the forefront of every Verbero product and program. And now, without further ado, guys, here's another episode of Hockey Talk, joined by Andy Sutton. All right, everyone, welcome back to another edition of Hockey Talk. Uh, with me today, Andy Sutton joins me. Andy, how you doing? Good, Ryan. How you doing? I'm good, man. Uh, where are you right now? Uh, so my, my family and I live just outside Nashville, Tennessee, in a town called Franklin. So we relocated here about three months ago. We lived on a homestead in Southern California and realized uh, we were spending most of our time on our property and realizing what we we're paying out there for taxes and everything else. We decided, you know, during COVID to make a big move. And um, like I said, we're about three months in here, kind of putting things back together. That's awesome, man. Is it a, a booming hockey market right now with Nashville? I know uh, it seems like they're getting more rinks in the state and everything. It really is. You know, the, you know, when the Preds came in, what, close to 20 years ago or whatever it was, and I think it's been a, been obviously a successful franchise throughout. So they've really built a loyal fan base. And then they have um, a couple of organizations that have spawned off of that. Um, and believe it or not, they've kind of flexed to the extent there's not enough rinks to service the demand. So I'm actually in a meeting tomorrow with, with Ryan Smith and Lubos Bartechko and uh, Marty Erat and a couple of others um, talking about this, this new rink, which could, could uh, looks like it has a good chance to become the Verbero center. So we've got a chance to have a rink here locally for the brand um, and, and really just to get involved with a, with an uprising association here, sort of from, from the beginning. Um, there's a whole association that spawned out of a need for a third place for people to play. And then with just things growing so quickly, the expansion is nuts. I mean, I was downtown Nashville a couple of days ago. I think there was like 17 skyscrapers up, just erecting all kinds of buildings. I mean, it's just, it just can't meet the demand. I mean, it's become a, a hotbed for tourism. Uh, you know, people moving here from all over the place, especially through the pandemic, it's become one of the most attractive places in the whole country to live. So it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be here. Yeah, that's what I've heard too, is it's uh, just an absolutely crazy market um, just overall. Um, I want to get into to your hockey career at, first and foremost. Uh, that's that's you know how we know of Andy Sutton. And you grew up in Kingston, so is it safe to say you were a Leaf fan growing up, or did you really did you really care? Were you too depressed to be a Leaf fan? <laughs> no, I, I was, and I grew up. I spent most of my childhood and and um, 
and, and minor hockey in, uh, in Burlington, Ontario. So just kind of outside of Toronto. And my dad had a business in Oakville for a long time. Uh, we moved to Kingston when I was 14 and my family's been there ever since that was in like 89. So we've been there a long time uh, as a family. And then uh, I was a Leaf fan through and through. My dad had season tickets. We got to go to a bunch of Leaf games and he's still the most diehard Leaf fan on the planet. And then I think like a lot of kids who were, you know, I was born in 75. So, you know, a lot of kids are born around that time. Like I was, I was so, uh, such an impression, so impressionable towards what was happening at Edmonton, you know, with Kretzky and everything like that. So I was definitely an Oiler fan, um, you know, in parallel to being a Leaf fan. And in a lot of ways that I kind of never lost that anytime I'd go into Toronto, it always felt very strange to go in and play there. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was very out of, out of body experience for sure. Yeah. Who did you model your game after uh, growing up? Well, you know, I was uh, I was a forward until I was um, until I was uh, I guess I would have been uh, twenty years old. So I was a defenseman out of the gates and scored a lot of points. Like as a as a young guy, I think when I was ten, they turned they're like, oh well, he scores a lot of points. He should be a forward, and so they turned me into a forward. And then I was a forward from ten till twenty. I got a scholarship as a forward, and then. Um, it was during the 93, 94, 94, 90, no, is that right? Yeah, 94, 95 lockout, my, my sophomore year at Michigan Tech. Um, Pierre Paget, the famous coach, came and spent two weeks with our club. And, and when he left, um, the coach, Bob Mancini, called me up into his office and he said, hey, do you want to know what Pierre had to say about you? I was like, sure. I hadn't done much at that point. I had a fairly lackluster freshman year. You know, sophomore year wasn't off to a much better start. And he said, all he said was try something at defense. He said, would you be interested? I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it. Why not? I, I never shied away from, uh, you know, from challenges and stuff like that. And in retrospect, it was the best thing that I ever did. Uh, you know, it took the rest of that year and even my junior year and I had had a you know, shoulders injury my junior year that, that hurt me though. Nothing really uh, was aligning. And then I don't know, the stars all aligned and I was uh, hit everything on all fronts my senior year. And, you know, I was un, undrafted and, and went from, you know, six bucks in my bank account to having four, 14 teams try to sign me the day after my last game. It was pretty, pretty crazy, a pretty crazy event, but um, it, it, you know, it was a, it was definitely a big stepping stone for me going to tech and having the time and the space to, to be able to sort of spread, you know, spread out and figure out what kind of player I was going to be. And I guess in the end, you know, when I went into sign with the sharks and went in there and, and, you know, Brian Marchment was there who I loved watching, you know, I loved how, how, how ferocious he was and, and the open, open ice style hitting. And, um, you know, then at that time, you know, I was, I was, probably thinking about, you know, on the offensive side and the more dynamic side of things, you know, Chris Pronger and, you know, Darian Hatcher was in such, such prominence at that time. And I think I moved better than he did. I think I had more better skills than he did. So in a lot of ways, like I kind of looked at those guys and then looked a little bit like, you know, what Pronger was doing on, on that side of the game and, you know, work to try to go there. Pro problem was, uh, <laughs> you know, at 250 pounds, I had to do all kinds of other stuff that those guys didn't have to do. And it kind of, you know, I think it kind of took away from it. So I ended up, I ended up kind of patterning my own thing, you know, with the shot blocking, um, you know, certainly the hitting and kind of just made a style that was my own and, and been probably, you know, looking at it now, it was probably the thing that kept me around because I think I was, I was unique in that regard. Well, you, you mentioned that year at Tech, and I was going over your, your college career, and I was like, okay, so you, you had six goals and 16 points in your first three seasons. Last year, you get 16 goals and 40 points just in the one year. So what 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 changed for you there? Well, it's it's something I touch on a lot, you know, and in, in my life and over the course of my life, there have been moments where um, 
I think I've chosen to just be present and not be so attached to results. And that was a year where I was like, I don't know what I've got left of this. So I'm just going to leave it all out there. I'm going to play my way. Um, I'm not going to overthink anything. I'm going to trust my instincts and abilities. And I've had enough of these moments now in my life where I realize that that faith that you have in yourself is, is everything and, and having trust in that. And then, because we're all hard workers, right? Like we all hockey guys all know how to, and girls all know how to work really hard. Um, you know, so the work ethic isn't the thing. It's not like more time in the gym is the thing that's going to get you there for most of us. And especially nowadays, everybody's in top shape. So it boils down to, you know, really like what's going on between your ears. And then a lot of it, I think like the best players aren't thinking about anything. And if you understand anything about the way that thought is processed and, and subconscious thought, you know, processing it like 30,000 times faster than, than conscious thought, if you can really access that side of your brain, you can do things faster and more efficiently and, and more expertly than, than the next guy who's not so that in the end like the road towards excellence is getting to work moving towards like a, a total faith in your in your abilities was it common to go the college route back back then I, I mean I had Sean Bell on recently and he was a first rounder in 03 and he said even at that time it was if you were in Canada it was just you're playing in the the Canadian Hockey League and and not many guys made the college jump for you, was that kind of a, a situation where you thought, hey, maybe, you know, maybe I, I might not play in the pros, so maybe going to college might be the better offer? Or? Well, I, I, I was a, I was very much a late bloomer. I, you know, I, I didn't make my midget team, so I went and played Tier 2 Junior A, um, you know, playing with guys with mustaches and beards and jobs and, you know, and, and baby, baby mama drama and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I was thrust into that all pretty quick, like at 16, and, and uh you know, from there, I, I ended up, I ended up uh, having an opportunity to go play at St. St. Mike's with the buzzers before they were a major junior uh, franchise. And, and at that time, like that was the place to go probably there and when Wexford and uh, to, to try to get a scholarship. And I was, I was always, um, you know, I was always under the thought process, I guess, in one way or another that like, there was always going to be life after hockey, no matter what I did. So I was like, I'm going to go get an education. And, you know, if I can round out my game and get good enough while I'm there, that's where something can happen. I'll also have an education and, and, a, you know, on a basis basis for, you know, for, you know, hopefully a successful life after the game. So, you know, and, and even in that, like, you know, I never got drafted the NHL. I go there, you know, I had very lackluster first three years and, all roads lead to Rome. And I think sometimes you just end up right where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there, you know, and, and I'll think in a lot of ways, like we, we were, we're as uh, influential as we think we are. I think uh, <laughs> a lot of times there's other things at play that, that sort of dictate the course for us. So again, that's back to faith and, and faithfulness and wherever that road takes you, because, you know, one thing might lead to another and might lead to another and lead to another. But in the end, like you've got to be thankful for that first thing that you chose to do that led you, led you to the next place. So I kind of try to see everything that way. Yeah. You mentioned uh, as well. You, so your last year, in Michigan, you, you end up leaving Michigan, you'll play seven games for the Kentucky uh, Thoroughblades in the American league. So, I mean, how, how did that come about and, and what was that transition of the pro game like for you? Well, you know, I, I came off of that great year at school. So, I mean, I was feeling confident and I was playing well. Um, and the Sharks wanted me to leave right away and, and go join the team in the, America, in the American League for the you know end of the season. And I think I don't think it was even playoffs. I think they, the team wasn't going to make the playoffs, but I think they wanted me to play the last seven games or whatever. So, you know, going in there, I was 
I was fired up. Like, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to get going. I wanted to stake my claim and, um, and I never really minded dropping the gloves. So I, you know, I fought a few times and, and then from there, the, the sharks called me up to be a black ace with the team while they were in the playoff run, which in, which in hindsight was like one of the best things that ever happened because I got a chance to spend like almost two months with, with the team, got to know a lot of the guys. So going into that camp the next year, um, you know, I had a real advantage. And then they asked, they asked me to stay that summer. I had another shoulder surgery. I ended up having 14 surgeries in 16 years, but I had another, I had another shoulder surgery, um, that summer I rehabbed that whole summer. So I was with the medical staff and the training staff pretty much the whole summer. Um, and then when I went into camp, I felt really comfortable because I knew a lot of the guys and obviously the staff and, um, you know, so I think that comfort level allowed, I made the club that year, uh, out of camp. And I only went back for a few short stints in the American League, mostly for conditioning, and and never really, no, never really spent much time much time there at all. So, it was uh, it was a it was a good choice, I think, in the end that I that I chose the Sharks to get started with. Yeah, that uh, that one year, that seven game stint in uh, Kentucky as well. There was uh, I saw Zidane Chara was on that roster. Did you guys ever share the ice at the same time or? Yeah, we we did. You know, it was uh, it wasn't much room out there. I can assure you. <laughs> It was crazy. And I went up and I ended up playing uh, quite a bit with Mike Rathje, who was a, you yeah. know, I think Mike, Mike was like six, five or six, six, and he and I were partners for a while. So it was, uh, I definitely got to play with it with a few uh, pretty big dudes over the years. Yeah. Who was your first NHL game against? Uh, against Philadelphia Flyers. So it was uh, in, in Philly too. It was, uh, I think I played like 23 minutes and I was, uh, <laughs> I was absolutely on fire. I mean, I just, I was just so pumped to be there and, and uh, I, I can remember, I can remember I had a really great game and it was uh, definitely a highlight. I always, I always felt nostalgic going back to Philly after that. And that, you know, that's such a cool place to play. They're so loyal to their fan base and there was always like, you know, they always appreciated like a, a bigger, more rugged player. So in a lot of regards, like, I think I kind of wished I got to play there, but uh, yeah. going, going back and sort of, um, you know, recollecting, uh, reminiscing back towards that first game was always a highlight for me. Do you have any memories? Like were you out there against, you know, Lindros and the Legion of Doom line or anything? Or Yeah, I, yeah. I was. I got to play against them a bunch. And I remember I was, I was giving somebody the business and, you know, I, I remember Luke, Luke Richardson came and he like tried to scrap me in a game and stuff like that to tell me to stop it. And I was like, I ain't, I'm not stopping anything. <laughs> but, like this is, this is it, get used to it. So, you know, and then I played against those guys a bunch for the, you know, a few years after and stuff like that. But I mean, just to look back on, I mean, so many amazing players I got to play against. I got to play against both Kretzky and Lemieux in their final years. And, uh, and then, you know, Sidney Crosby as a rookie, Ovechkin as a rookie. And then, you know, when I was in Atlanta, you know, getting to, getting to, we played our division rivals eight times a year. So go against Ovi and those guys, you know, eight times a year. And, you know, most of the time I was in Atlanta, I was charged with the responsibility of being against him every time he was on the ice. So it was always an adventure, you know, trying to figure out what those guys were going to try to do. But, um, you know, there in Tampa Bay with Le Cavalier and, and San Louis and Brad Richards in their prime and, and uh, Danny Boyle. I mean, what a, what a squad those guys yeah. had and playing against them all the time. And, uh, you know, even, uh, even Eric Stahl, you know, in Carolina for score. I was in Rod Brindamore. I mean, Eric Cole. The 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 groups that were in our division there were were were, were really good. Really good. They had some really dynamic players, and it was um, it was definitely a highlight to be in that Southeast division. Yeah, Eric Stahl. You, that name. Um, he's kind of an under uh, underappreciated guy, I think, at this point. I mean. Yeah, I don't know if he'll make the Hall of Fame, but I was kind of going over. I saw he scored his first goal as a Saber the other night, and 
I kind of thought, you know, he's got a, he's got a cup. He's got an Olympic gold medal. I think he was, uh, I want to say he's got a couple 40 goal seasons, but, uh, he should be a hall of famer. I mean, he's had an amazing career and, uh, he's, he's been a leader everywhere he's gone. He's certainly, certainly touched a lot of people over the years. Uh, your first NHL goal, do you remember who that was on? And, uh, was it a, a Paul Coffey end to end, uh, walk through five guys and backhand shelf? Cause I'm going to have to evolve this story because it's, uh, <laughs> it's really not a great one. You know, it's like a seeing eye puck from the point. Yeah. Actually here in, in Nashville against Thomas Bocoon. So I, I've got to, I've got to come up with some kind of story about this. Thing. <laughs> it's a, a one, but, uh, it, it is what it is. You now you get the monkey off your back and kind of roll from there. And, you know, mo- most, most of my career, I was, you know, I was kind of, you know, forced to play a defensive role, uh, except for a couple of years there in Atlanta. But, uh, you know, yeah. so the, the goals the goals were uh, fewer and further between than I probably would have liked, but uh, uh, nonetheless, it was it was good to get the monkey off my back. Yeah, I had a guy on recently, and and he played pre YouTube, and I said, you know, your first NHL goal. I said, well, you got to tell you know he's got kids that are teenagers now, and they don't they, they've never seen the highlight either. I said, well, what you tell them is you know this was early two thousands. He got his first goal. I said, so you're against Detroit. You skated past Iserman, Fedorov couldn't catch you. You went through Lidstrom, and Hasek was in net. You went bar down, backhand. I said, like your kids, they can't dispute that. You know, there's there's no footage. Same for mine. I think mine was in I think mine was in '99, so I should probably do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just act humble. It's, it'll be okay. Um, Minnesota actually took you in the 2000 expansion draft. So, you know, what what goes through your mind there? Were you excited at the possibility of maybe playing? You know, for uh, getting a lot of ice time, or was it kind of like expansion teams probably going to suck and and is this going to be a bit of a long season for me well being a young player and, and i was i was definitely full of piss and vinegar and i i i had sort of uh you know i didn't understand i don't think at the time you know how much allegiance there was to veteran players and things really changed obviously with the with the way the collective bargaining agreements evolved but um you know back when i started the veteran players had paid their dues to get to that point and going into San Jose, you know, with the likes of, you know, Gary Suter and Jeff Norton and Brian Marchment and, and, um, you know, the, and, and we had, we had all Bob Rouse. I mean, we had all pretty Mark, Marcus Ragnus and Mike Ratchet. We had all pretty much like veteran players. And I, and I assumed that I was good enough and, and should have been playing. And I, maybe I should have been, but I, I definitely made a stink about it near the end and had it out with, with Dean Lombardi actually uh, during the playoffs that second year I was there and it, it didn't, I, I offended him. I ended up going in much, you know, a year or so later and apologized for my behavior, but I, I didn't know what I was getting. And I was just, I was just, you know, fired up and wanted to play and I had a lot of energy to, to that I had to play somewhere. So I, I made a stink and, and they exposed me. And, and I think uh, I was, I was happy, but I was excited. You know, they had an incredible roster of, of leaders there, you know, with, with Jacques Lemaire and, Doug Riseborough as the GM and the, the new building and the Negley family were just like incredible. They had us all in. And it was a, it certainly wasn't a who's who, you know, it was a, it was a hodgepodge of players, but we really had, it was probably the best, you know, time I had as a team, because I think we brought in a lot of guys that were kind of all in a similar situation and then being there and, and being, you know, having hockey come back to Minnesota was, was insane. I mean, they were so fired up to have us back that XL energy center was, you know, leading edge at the time and it was it was an incredible facility and then the staff that they amassed there I and mean, all the way through the the medical and equipment staff you know Tony DeCosta is still there 
um, Don Fuller as the as the AT. I mean, just like the just like the best cast, honestly, and and the most professional organization. So it was uh, it was it was a welcome change for me. Um, and again, I had another experience when I was there. You know, they I, I can still remember. I I went up to Mike Ramsey, right? Uh, another another legend. He was a D coach, and I and I, had, I think I'd had a good game as a defenseman. And they were kind of oscillating me back and forth between forward and D and. And I went up to Mike and I said, Mike, I think I'm meant to be a defenseman in this league. And he looked me square in the eye and told me it would never happen, that I'd never be a defenseman in the NHL. So this is my fourth season in, in, into a 15-year career. And, and I I respectfully uh, declined his, uh, you know, his notions. <laughs> I, went in, uh, I went in the next day to Doug Risebro and I said, hey, Doug, like, I really believe this fundamentally. Um, if there's any way that you could trade me somewhere where somebody would want me as a defenseman, I'd be eternally grateful. And he traded me within a week to Atlanta. And that was really the place where things sort of, you know, transformed for me, you know, in, in, in large part, Bob Hartley came in and, and he had said to me, uh, you know, when he had his meetings coming in, you know, I've, I've heard you can really play. You haven't shown any consistency. Uh, we're going to find out if, if you can play in this league at the level you, you're, you know, you're, you're supposed to be able to play to. We're going to find out one way or another. I'm going to play you 30 minutes a night and we're going to let you slit your own, slit your own throat. So, and he did, he put, he played me 30 minutes a night and um, you know, no matter what happened, good, bad or indifferent, I didn't come off the ice. I was over the boards every second shift and, you know, taking all the key minutes. And, and it was really the, the place where I carved out my identity. I definitely, you know, revealed to myself and others that I could handle the workload. And, um, and from there, it kind of, you know, just, just evolved. Well, and I mean, looking at your hockey DB, you had your best seasons in Atlanta, like both maybe defensively, there's no real metrics uh, for, for that, but offensively you had uh, your best numbers in your career there. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was obviously a good move for you. It was, you know, and he had me on the power play and I was able, you know, I always shot well over a hundred miles an hour and, and, uh, you know, they'd load me up one timers and, you know, I, I had that role my last year in school and I always had an offensive touch. I just was, like I said, there's a lot of circumstances where like to be an offensive defenseman, to lead power play, like you, you know, right. Like you've got to be like another level of, of studliness, you know, and it's just like, and at the NHL level, I mean, there's a select group of guys that can do that. It's a very small yeah. group. And typically you're not, they're not like six foot seven and 250 pounds. You know, it's like, it's usually somebody that's, that's a little more of a hybrid type of player. Um, so, in, you know, in a lot of ways, I, um, you know, I, I owe a lot to Bob and his belief in me. I can remember the, one of the first games and, and he, I was on the first power play unit and something happened, you know, and it came down and I went to change like 30 seconds in. And then there was a whistle and, and he, he came down and he got in my face. He's like, you don't come off the ice for power play until I tell you to come off. He wanted me to stay on the whole two minutes. Cause I don't, I don't know what he had in behind or like, I don't remember any of that, but I think he, <laughs> this, this guy's the guy I'm investing in. And, and yeah. I want him to know that like, he needs to stay out there until I tell him otherwise. So, you know, in that, in that way, like maybe, you know, it's always that what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, like what do you, do you <laughs> You, uh, you know, do you get the, the ice time to get the confidence or do you get the confidence to get the ice time? And, and in that regard, like Bob gave me the ice time and then the confidence, the confidence um, definitely accrued from there. You might be the first person I've ever heard say a positive thing about Bob Hartley because uh, it seems like most stories uh, that come out about him are guys that, that hated playing for him. But um... uh, guys need to temper that because, you know, Bob, Bob, uh, Bob runs a, sh- a tight ship and, yeah. and he's, super detail oriented he's extremely intense and his practices are are ridiculously hard 
which, you know, is his way of trying to, you know, make sure you're game ready and make sure you're focused and on point. And a lot of guys don't like that. A lot of guys don't like being directed that way. You know, some of his practices, I think, were like how he maybe treat people he wasn't happy with or probably the things. And those are probably the guys that sing it the loudest, you know, the guys that he was really hard on. Um, and, 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 you know, he can, he can be that way, but he's also, um, he's also, you know, an incredible coach. He's one of the most detail oriented coaches I ever had. His practices were always like, you know, super fast paced and on point. You knew exactly how many minutes you were going to do each thing and post it before, before the practice. So everybody was on board, you know, and then he, we knew he was going to push us. Like we, we knew Monday morning was going to be a, just an absolute beast of a practice. He did it all the time. And I think he did it. So we didn't drink too many beers on Sunday. <laughs> he had his reasons. Yeah. He had his reasons for everything for sure. Yeah. Actually, you know what I was listening to, uh, Russ Cortnell's got a podcast and he's, you know, played for the Canucks and he's kind of a, uh, you know, celebrity in, in British Columbia. And he was talking about just recently the whole John Tortorella, is he, you know, the world's worst coach and that kind of thing. And, and Cortnell made a point that I thought was, I guess, you know, you really have to think about it, but he said, you know, if, if you're playing for a guy that's really hard on you, but he wants you to succeed, well, that's a good thing. If he's picking on you because he hates you as a player and as a person, then yeah, at that point you might want to maybe see if you can get moved out or something like that. But you know, I mean, I played, I mean, granted, I capped out at about 15. I kind of realized this probably isn't going to happen for me. But playing AAA, I had a coach that was on my ass about, you don't hit, you don't play defense. And I was just too dumb and too immature to, to you know, I was like, I know I'm a winger. I'm going to score goals. That's what I'm on the team for. And looking back, I'm going, no, he, you know, he, he, he didn't hate me as a person, but he wanted me to, do, you know, to evolve my game. And I think, uh, I think nowadays, and I'm 29, I, I, kind of the middle of the millennial scale there but I see a lot of these younger you know young players coming in and it almost just seems like maybe they've had their hand held for most of their life and now they get to the NHL and they got a coach who's saying hey you know it's the difference between you making four million and seven million is you got to round out your 200 foot game or something and they, they can't seem to hack it. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, they, and I, I think every coach has a vested interest to get want to get the most out of their out of their players. The, the problem is like not every player responds to the same feedback and the great, the really great coaches, I think that stay around a long time. Cause I, I think there's a lot of coaches like Bob might fall in this category, like maybe a good two or three year coach because that, you know, by the end, like, especially the star players, they're not listening. Anymore. They're over it. Like they can't stand it anymore. Um, you know, and I saw it time and time again, you know, that's why you see this turnover. So the guys that can really stick around like the Joel Quenbills and, 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 and the likes of those types of coaches, I think they have a better way of, of like interfacing with the, with the players in a way where you're like, more, you're more like a teammate, you know, and a coach, you know, and that's a, that's a fine line. That's hard to do. It's a lot easier to be the hard ass all the time and do it, you know, do it your way than just like work with you, work with me, work with the next guy to figure out where the, where the common ground is. That's a lot, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work. Yeah, I'm a Capitals fan, so I'm really hoping Peter Laviolette, uh, his his trend is usually get to the finals year one, and then year three you lose the room, and so I'm, I'm really banking, really banking on this year. Uh, you were in Atlanta, you had a couple studs there, and Heatley and Kovalchuk. Uh, I mean, why do you think hockey just couldn't succeed in Atlanta? Like, was it uh, a small but passionate fan base, or was there, there much interest at all? Yeah, there was, you know, in the in in 07 there when we went went to the playoffs for the first time um we had a great team you know we had we had we had Kobe and heater we had Marion Hosa there we had um you know Bobby Holik Scott Mellenby Keith Keith Chuck came in the deadline 
We had, you know, we had um, Kari Lettinen, who was like really starting to come into his own as a starting goaltender. Um, we had Johan Hedberg as a backup. I mean, we had we had a really good team. You know, myself and the Cablet, we had uh, Alex Shitnick. I mean, we had we had the makings uh, for a great team. And then there was there was really no continuity plan. You know, beyond that year, like they let they let me go, and I was you know the, the top D there for the five years prior. Um, you know, there were a few other guys that that went that year. We had great support players too, like Garnet Exelby and a few others. I mean, we, you know, Brad Larson. I mean, just you know, you know, Jim Slater. I mean, we had like we had some really good accessories to the sort of like you know, quote unquote studs or whatever. And we had a really dynamic team, and they just didn't really um, keep it up. And they let they let Bob go the the, the year the first year that I was gone. I think he got fired before January. So I mean. You know, in, in hindsight, uh, you know, I sort of wish in some regards that I got the chance to stay there. And, and you know, maybe if they moved the coach first before they started moving players, it might have gone better. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they certainly, I don't know what you can carry over for Winnipeg or not, but they, you know, they've definitely got a got a great thing going going up there, it seems to me. Well, they got similar issues. Well, they got no no defense in Winnipeg anymore. It's just Josh Morrissey and, and then they're kind of filling out the roster. Um after Atlanta, you ended up uh, signing a, a UFA deal with the Islanders, and uh, I'm just curious. Uh, a guy that I noticed you played with was Rick DiPietro. He just kind of started out that 15 year deal. Um, what were your thought on thoughts on Rick? And I mean, he kind of I, I hear people say he's a bust, and and I, I mean, I, I didn't see much of him play. Obviously, being on Long Island, and I'm in Vancouver, but it seems like he was a good goalie. He just could never stay healthy. But uh, what were your thoughts on Rick? Well, Ricky, Ricky and I became good, good buddies. Um, when I, when I was there, we hung out a lot and I got a chance to, you know, be by his side, um, a lot when he was go, going through the injuries and stuff like that. And it was, it was brutal to watch. I mean, he was, he was going through hell and, and, um, you know, and, and yeah, he'd signed, he's, he's, he's probably one of the more progressive athletes the NHL has ever seen a guy that goes and does a deal direct with an owner, right? Like he's just yeah. like, hell with everybody i'm going to go do this deal with the owner and he got a great deal and he should be commended on on his you know entrepreneurial way of doing things he really should and then you know the rest is just kind of tragic you know with what happened to his to his body and i think it was really all unbeknownst to him you know what what was coming down the pipeline with everything and you know once you once you start messing with hips and knees and you've got you know seriously aggressive you know injuries and and remediation techniques it's it's very difficult to come back and be the same athlete you know and 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 there's their emotional component to it for sure but i'll tell you like you want to talk about just raw talent and a and a and a uh a, a desire for the limelight like R ricky ricky was was all of that and he he had it all i mean he really did have every opportunity to to be that if he could have just stayed healthy it would have gone on for a long time for him you know and it's uh it's it's unfortunate to, we you know to see something like that happen what's it like playing for the islanders when they're they're kind of viewed as the little brother to the rangers and it's you know i mean I guess in the sense of, I heard Sean Avery say once, like if a guy's going to sign in New York, he's signing to with the New York Rangers. But uh, you obviously went to the Islanders, and it's it's been an organization that's kind of dysfunctional. Uh, they're starting to get the the arena thing settled now and and everything. But I mean, just when you got there, like obviously it's a storied franchise too, and the fan base is passionate. But did you kind of feel like? there's a less of a spotlight playing uh, with the Islanders or, or was it really noticeable for you? Well, I mean, I guess I, I never really looked at it like the spotlight, you know, and we always loved playing the Rangers and I, we always did well against them. And it was, it was, um, 
you know, that was part of the deal going there. And, and the, the organization was definitely in transition at the same point in time. Um, they had a great group of people, you know, like I, Snow, Garth Snow was there as a GM when I came in and, and we, you know, we had, we had a great, we had a great, we had great personnel, honestly, like we had, you know, Dougie, Dougie Wade and Bill Guerin there. Um, you know, we had, there were some great mainstay players, you know, Mike Sillinger was there and, and Sean Bates and uh, Trent Hunter. And I mean, we had a, we had a really strong group, mainstay group there. And I think we, we, we probably should have done better than we did quite honestly. Um, and I don't know what, I don't know what the reason is for that. You know, um, it's certainly not the arena. It's certainly not, you know, the, the transition that the organization was going through. It, it, it's just, it's hard. People need to understand how challenging it is to, to make the Stanley cup playoffs because only half the teams make it. And then from there, like one, one team goes through four rounds and plays, you know, up to 28 games to get that done. I mean, so to, to be considered gr like a great team, a lot of things have to be firing, you know, otherwise you're, you're kind of just scrapping and you're week to week. And that's what it always sort of felt like there. Like we can never really, never really break, break, uh, break over the, over the edge, you know, over the precipice of it. So that's sort of the difference I think between playing on great teams and, and playing on, you know, maybe more like average teams. Every team that's not great is probably just average, you know. The uh, the Islanders, though, you were there when, when Tavares came to town, and, and what was the, I guess, the hype and the pressure cooker for this 18-year-old that, uh, I mean, I was hearing about when I was 14, and uh, it was it was kind of a, I don't think there's ever been that much hype, I mean, until McDavid came along for a young guy. John, I mean, Johnny never, I mean, he didn't, it didn't bother him one bit. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was in his own, his own world and did, you know, did things very much his own way. Um, and he came in I and mean, he was, he was ready to go. He was turnkey ready to go. Even as an 18 year old, he was, he was able to play and, and, and play well. Uh, it's been really cool to watch the, the player and person he's turned into because he was, he was, uh, the only thing that, that was missing was just some experience and, He's got that now and he's in a, he's gone back home and he's in such a strong position for himself to, to really carve out an incredible career for himself. So he's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited, but it was fun, fun to have him come there and get to watch, watch what he can, what he can do. I mean, just, uh, and the work ethic that he has and the, the, uh, work ethic behind everything. Like he was, even as a young player, I mean, he knew what to do from a treatment standpoint. He knew what to do for, from a preparation standpoint. He was all in, he was like at the rink as long or longer than anybody else. And he was always doing the right things. And, and then on the ice, he had such an attention to detail and, and his personal skill development was, was always at a forefront. You'd watch some of the drills he'd do by himself all the time. And you're just blown away that this young person had such a, such a command of their craft. So he, he was a, he was a pro from, from the get-go for sure do you think it was fair how the fan base treated him with with him leaving i mean there's i guess like when i heard about it, i thought you know he's a ufa so it's within his right but uh it seemed like most people thought he he should have been you know being a first overall pick he should have stayed there his entire career i mean you know, as a player, you you, you know, you went through it too, uh, going through free agency and stuff. Did you have any, did, did you think it was like within John's right and, and nobody should be, be mad or what were your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, look in the, in the end and people can say what they want, but the teams, the teams will turn and burn you as fast as, fast as they sign you on. And, yeah. and this is a business, you know, it, 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 sure, it's a business and it's, it is entertainment. 
it like we can call it what we want but it is it's entertainment you know when you really boil it down and with that said you know the enter the entertainers need to need to do whatever they need to do to to prolong their careers or make as much money as they can um yeah. so from that regard when you when you've gotten to the point where you've earned ufa status the, no one should give a discount to do something like you should you should you should do you should go where you want to go and make what you deserve to make and and feel feel pumped about it i mean it's not it's not if the team if the team wants you bad enough they should they should pay you for it you know that's what i that's what i think you know especially when you're when you're a you know blue chip guy like that I mean, you've got to you've got to do everything under the sun to get an athlete like that because he's He's an athlete that makes your whole organization better. He's a face of a franchise, and and you know, and in a lot of ways, you know, Toronto needed that, and and they they really they really needed John and the fact that he's from there. I mean, he's he's definitely a, a great addition to that franchise. You wrapped up your career with stops in Ottawa, Anaheim, and Edmonton. Uh, any any funny memories from those spots? Uh, I, I know Edmonton was. Uh... Not the not the greatest. Uh, that was another transition phase, I guess, for you to go through with Edmonton. Well, actually, I mean, actually, my time in Edmonton was was probably one of my more favorite times in my whole yeah. career. Yeah, so yeah, you know, I, I got there and and to get a chance to be around all those amazing young talents. I mean, there were so many; it was just it was crazy. So again, like every day, you'd go to the rink, you watch what these what these uh, young men were were able to do, and then to, you know, I I was there solo the whole year, so I was able to spend a lot of time with, you know, Taylor Hall and Jordan Eberle and Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Sam Gagne and Lattice Lovesmead and, you know, we, and, you know, Devin Dubnik and early on in his career, like just, just some really great, really great young players. Um, you know, and I, I loved it. I loved my time there. And, in, in, you know, in, in Ottawa was the first time I got a chance to, to go to Canada. You know, and I yeah. had come off probably my best year in 2009 and 2010 was probably my best year uh, all around the NHL. I was, Playing a lot of minutes um, on the island, and, and I was I was uh, having a really strong defensive year, and, and got picked up at the trade deadline, and got to go up there and be close to family, and that was awesome. Um, and then you know the, my time with the Ducks was um, probably the hottest time. You know I shattered my thumb in a fight first game of the year, and I was on the top pair with Lou Mirvisnatsky, and it was all looking a certain way. And I never really got back in the fray. I think I missed like thirty or. 35 games and came back at a massive cast on my hand. Uh, it just never, it just never really worked out. And then uh, I was actually, you know, really relieved in a lot of ways to get a, get a fresh start and go up to Edmonton. I love my time there. Tom Rennie was such a great coach and, and, um, and mentor. And there was really wonderful people there. Um, the, the city embraces you like, like none other. And it was a, it was a nice place to end. I wish it had been on my own terms. You know, I ended up, end up having an injury um, that summer heading into my second year there. I'd signed a one-year deal, one-year extension, and I never got a chance to touch the ice again. And, and it was unknown to me that that was going to happen. So the, the injury ended up being a, a career-ending one, and, and that was it. But I, I feel really fortunate I was able to play until I was 38 years old. I just I just assumed I'd be in my 40s before I stopped, but uh, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the next Chelios, right? Everyone thinks it'll be 45, 46, 47, but... Uh, I think I had a chance for it because I, I really was still feeling really good, and um, you know my training was was get was getting better and better. And I, I think in a lot of regards, it, my how I played my position was becoming more sought after because you know the game moved away from big guys, but big guys that could move and 
and big, big guys that, that could, you know, fill a, a leadership role on teams were, were really sought after, you know, and I became as much a, as much a like off, off ice, like a player coach as, as anything, you know, the last few years. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I was a good fit in Edmonton. Like, I think I was able to, to be there and, and, and try and, and, and be, spend that time with the young guys and try to, you know, can convey whatever I may or may, may have learned along the way to try to help them in their process. Your time in Ottawa was short, but you had one of the most memorable uh, post-game interviews I think we've ever seen. That um, I wanted to ask you just, I mean, so often now we, we saw recently Jake Voracek had uh, his Zoom call kind of flipping out on the, the reporter there. And yeah, I've always kind of felt like sometimes these guys are set up for failure in a way because you get off the ice, it's an emotional time. And then some guy who's never played a game in his life throws a, you know, a microphone and a camera in your face and asks you a stupid question. Now, I'm just kind of curious, what do you, what do you think of uh, the media? Do you think there's a better way to, to do these types of post-game interviews? I know these guys have deadlines, but I oftentimes wonder if, uh, if they thrive off of trying to get guys to pop off and, and maybe uh, get them in some trouble. Well, they, you know, and, and they do, and it's, it's trying to create newsworthy stuff and, and you can't really blame them. And the, and the teams all have a, you know, media liaisons that are incredible. I mean, even in that, in that expert, you know, uh, interview, I, I turned to my guy and I'm like, you know, get me out of here. This is not going well. When they do, they're, they're really good at what they do. And then, 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 you know, the athletes are mostly very, you know, diplomatic. They understand what it is they're doing. And, and, you know, I, I didn't even feel you know, incorrect and, and sort of like pushing that back onto the reporter in a way. And it was, you know, we were, it was highly charged in the playoffs and, you know, the, the, was, the hit was brutal, you know, and, uh, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, it was absolutely, absolutely the most violent thing you could do to somebody on the ice probably. And, and um, you know, it was, it was uh, that type of, that type of environment. So I, I don't, I can't say I blame the guy to be honest. And I think in general, the media, the media is incredible. You know, they're, they're, they love our, they love our game as much or more than anybody else. They, they tell the stories that, that people want to hear and, and they're, they're a really important fabric, fabric of the game for sure. Yeah. Um, you're a, an undrafted guy, like we talked about, and I'm, I want to get your take on this because, you know, oftentimes if you're drafted outside the first round or not at all, it's kind of a one strike you're out. And um, we just saw Pierre-Luc Dubois and Patrick Laine both expressing in the last couple of years displeasure. Um, now we've got those two guys swapped for each other. And, and Dubois, I felt, me personally, I just felt like his last shift where he kind of dogged it, lost a puck battle to a guy that was half his size, uh, torts benchism, and, and that's kind of his legacy in Columbus. But he's a third overall pick, and he got a you know $10 million contract last offseason seeing as you had to fight for everything you had and, and like you talked about in Minnesota, they were trying to convert you uh, to, to just stay as a forward. You had to fight to be moved uh, back to the blue line and stuff. Does it, does it maybe bug you at all? Or does it kind of annoy you when you see these young guys that are, are high picks have that sort of entitlement to them or, or, you know, is that something that the league needs to really work on? Uh, maybe trying to fix. Cause I, I figure with an RFA, the whole point of being an RFA is the team can, can kind of own your rights until you're 25. And then at that point, if you want to leave, feel free, but we're, we're seeing more and more guys that are still, you know, in RFA that are saying, well, I don't, I don't want to be here and, and I want to be moved. Well, it's, you know, to, to look at it, you really got to go back, you know, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, when I, when I started, you had to get to 30, you had to get to 32 to even like have a sniff and, 
prior to that, if you if you made a stink, like they'd just bury you in the minors. I mean, half the yeah. guys all the time would be like, "This kid's a, this kid's a bad apple." We'd bury you in the minors, and you'd be typecast, and maybe somebody else would pick you up. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe you just maybe you just rot in the minors, you know. Um, and then when when we started, you know, sort of, you know, taking guys out of entry level deals and dollar cost averaging them to sign them to, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten year deals, whatever it is. Um, you know, you give it, you give a second year or third year player, you know, seventy million dollars. You got a problem. You got a problem. You know, you, there's that's a that's a tough environment for success because you don't know what that player did. That kid's a child. You gave a child. Yeah. You just gave a child seventy million dollars. So you know, if now the child isn't happy. Well, like he's probably, you know, and he probably came from a place where he had everything given to him too, but he was probably like an awesome player coming up and he probably nobody yeah. said no, or he did everything for him. So he, you got to understand the psychology to be able to understand what it is. And and in a lot of ways, you, you can't blame the athlete. And then, you know, the, the teams also at a certain point, like if a kid's not pulling his weight and he's not doing certain things and he doesn't like it, well, get out of here then. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't think that, you know, there's a lot of great players and there's a lot of players that would, would really relish the opportunity to play in a given city. So like guys shouldn't complain if you, you know, if, if you don't, and there's also, if you don't like something, there's a, there's a more respectful way to do it. So you don't like degrade yourself in the process Like go, go in and, and go in and speak to the management, you know, and talk, talk it through because even if it gets to the point where you're not happy, you don't want to be moved. Like you can do that in a, you can do that in a respectful way that uplifts you. And you, and you just never know, like in the end, like the GM that you, you know, like Dean Lombardi is a perfect example, right? I, I had it out with him and it, it didn't go well. And I was, I was less than respectful, you know, and then Dean, Dean, Dean ends up going to LA. Well, guess, guess where I'm never going, even though I didn't have an interaction with Dean while he was in LA, I'm never going back to LA. Um, and thankfully I went in and, and, and said my piece and the, the year I got a two year deal offer from the ducks, I got a one year deal offer from the Kings. So obviously it was water under the bridge, but you just, people need to understand how niche and how small this industry is. And you've got to, you've got to keep that in mind with everything you do. Yeah. And I mean, with the Dubois too, I think that the thing that bugged me a little bit was just the lack of respect to his teammates. Um, and again, I'm not going to pretend like I was ever close to sniffing the NHL or the AHL or anything like that, but I think it just, it bothered me to see him kind of give up. And I couldn't help but think like Nick Foligno, for instance, is the captain. He's been there a while. He's a veteran in the league. And um, I mean, if you're in that locker room as a, you know, a guy in his thirties, a veteran of the NHL, are you looking at Dubois maybe thinking, you know, F this guy, or are you kind of thinking like whatever, it's his life and let him do what he wants? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to help myself and to interject, you know, and I can remember back in, in Atlanta, I mean, I, I, I try to hammer Cobalt Truck in practice. I was just so mad, like that some of the stuff he'd do, you know, and I, I got in a scrap with, with Heater one time too. I remember he was going in for an EA Sports cover photo shoot and we got, got into it in front of him. And I always played hard in practice and he didn't like it. And he, he tried to, he tried to two hand. He broke my stick right on my hands and I just dropped my gloves and, and started hammering him. Like, I, I didn't see him. Everybody broke it up and the practice was over. He went off the ice with him and across him in the locker room and he had, he had knuckle prints right across his forehead. And, and, and I couldn't help. We had, had helped the chuckle as he, you know, flew to, flew to New York for his uh, EA sports uh, cover shoot. So, you know, and in a lot of ways back when we, we self-policed and, yeah. you know, the, the organizations that are the best, 
have have that in place. Like the, the coach isn't the one that should have to come down. The management isn't the one that should have to come down. You, you know, you should have an infrastructure that that uh, that upholds you know the the value, the core values that you that you want in place. You know, and I think Tor- I think Torts does that. You know, and yeah. and Brad Brad Larson's there, who I mentioned earlier. Brad's a, Brad's a super stand up guy, and and I'm I'm sure that they have that system. I played with Nick Foligno is one of the most incredible, like just natural born leaders that I I ever played with, and I'm sure they have that there. And at a certain point, like you know, if you're not pulling the rope, you stick out like a sore thumb, and you have you have one of two choices. You know, you can either you can either just, you know suck it up and pull the rope, or you're or you're gonna probably gonna be out of there because you 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 can't have that type of system and then keep a guy like that around. It just doesn't work. Let's talk about what you're up to now. I mean, you've, you know, post-career, uh, a lot of guys, they maybe don't know what to do or they, they just kind of coast for a bit, but you've actually, I mean, you're a successful entrepreneur with Verbero Hockey and uh, what's the company been up to recently? Uh, I would say a lot. You know, we've, we've really grown a lot through COVID. We've, um, we just think we just crossed the 200 rep threshold. So we, we opened up a, basically a territorialist rep system and we let our reps build their own sub-rep course. So, we let, you know, let them work with their best friends and colleagues, let them sell anywhere to anybody. And then we tripled the industry standard commission rate. So because of all that, we've grown really well. Um, we've got a proprietary team store software. So we actually host team stores 24 seven, 365. So people can check it out. It's just, it's just verbero.com forward slash like Shamanad or forward slash, you know, hockey Calgary. So if people want to check out yeah. what a team store looks like. Um, and then from that regard, you know, we're pushing, pushing big time into women's hockey. We're, you know, we never stop working on product. You know, we have the lightest stick on the market at 350 grams, uh, the only full carbon fiber skate. Uh, we own our own apparel manufacturing. So all the game wear, um, you know, game wear off ice apparel bags, accessories. I mean, we, we make it, uh, make it as good as any manufacturer on the, on the planet, in my opinion. And, and we, we turn it fast and, and then because we don't try to sell through retail, we, we offer player direct pricing to everybody, um, which makes us super competitive. Um, you know, our, our stuff on the whole is going to be you know, 30 to 30 to 60% less than the, the other manufacturers top tier product. And we don't, you know, we don't carry, you know, millions of products for every category. We want the best in class for every category. So we want the best stick, the best skate, the best quarters at putty, polo, goalie gear, whatever it's going to be. Uh, we want to have the best of, and then we just work to, to make that ever better, you know? And, and so there's no, con- there's no confusion. And then, and then we work to always make sure we can extend the best pricing to the end customer. So it's been, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a breath of fresh air into the hockey uh, community for sure. You know, the accessibility through the team stores, the, the pricing on our products, um, the uncomplicated you know, product alignment that we have, uh, lineup that we have, I think has been uh, been uh, incredible for people to, to realize. And then the, the proof's been in the pudding. You know, anytime we get product on somebody, anytime somebody gets our team, you know, team product, they're just, they're just blown away. So we've, we've definitely, uh, you know, we're definitely working hard. We're definitely, you know, it's still working every day to make it, be- make it better and better. And we'll never stop doing that. And we're, we're gaining, you know, new, new reps and new accounts all the time. So if anybody, if anybody watching wants to find out more about, you know, how to sell with us or, um, you know, more about team stores, you can just shoot me an email. It's just Andy at Berbero.com. Super easy. Um, and, and outside that, uh, you know, well, we just, uh, welcome any feedback and any new accounts and any way to get better. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> What goes into uh, like developing equipment these days? I mean, uh, how much science goes into it? How much, you know, are you, are you giving gear to players and saying, hey, try this out for a practice, get back to me? Like, what does that process look like? 
Yeah, so we've got some wear test guys that we use, and you know, thankfully, you know, I have a, I have a background in engineering and and uh, product development as well. I had I ran you know when I first retired, I worked in a in a company that did a lot of intellectual property uh, creation and, and licensing, um, and then subsequently, you know, product development and manufacturing sourcing. So I got a chance to really learn that portion of the business. And then prior to owning Verbero, I was president of a four brand hockey company. So I get to touch every aspect of it's, you know, sales marketing, you know, warehouse management, uh, you know, supply chain management, all that stuff. So I've really been able to put that all into Verbero. And then, you know, I, I personally wear test everything before I even give it a second thought. So I put it through the rigors and, and then I, I definitely have a, a team of, of elite players to, to get their hands on it as well. And then we hired a, a gentleman by the name of Neil Wensley, who's our director of, of, uh, of R&D. And uh, Neil Neil's got a 25 year background with with CCM Easton and Warrior. Um, he's, he's he was a top product guy with uh, with those companies for a, a long time, and and so you know whatever I don't know I I certainly bounce off of Neil. I picture you testing like you just grab some random guy and go hey I'm gonna cross check you a bunch of times stand in front of the net. we try to have fun with it for sure, but we're. Uh, you know, we're, um, we're always going to push the forefront, you know, our, our tagline is be different. We want to be different in every way. Uh, we want to be known, we want to be known for both innovation and performance. Um, you know, when we also want to be known to be cost effective. So we want to be approachable in that regard without compromising on quality. So that's really the core initiative at Rubero. That's awesome. What's next for the company? What's, what's the five-year plan for you guys? Well, we, we keep working on partnerships, you know, and we're, we're turning a lot of those on. We we're about to launch a partnership with Elite Prospects, which is super exciting working with them and through their platform. Um, you know, it, it, we're getting very close to getting uh, a deal done with the, the most prominent women's player to ever play the game. I'm not going to say any names yet because it's not done, but it's really exciting. And, and we're, we are really focusing on the women's game in general and the way that we're able to sort of uphold that is is through you know through the team through the stores right and then because we manufacture our own apparel we can create lines that are that are more specific to to women's needs exactly the products they want um and then we're the first company ever to do you know female inspired uh, stick graphics so we delivered one of the first you know that we delivered the first uh female decorated stick to blake bolden she's she's our only uh, women's ambassador at this point we've got um, about 15 top girls that have signed on uh, onto our rep course. We got about 15 NHL guys that have signed on. Um, so the word the word is spreading. A lot of that stuff's all internal, and then you know from there we're going to just keep reaching to to reach as many teams, leagues, individuals, and associations as we can to to spread the word and and, and bring them into the to the program as partners. So it's been uh, it's been a, it's been a wild ride, but it's been uh, it's been really fun so far. That's awesome. Um, well, I think this is a great place to leave it. Uh, Andy, is there anything else that you want to plug any, any where else people can reach out to you and say, hi? No, I think, I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, people can certainly check out, uh, you know, Verbero at verbero.com. It's, um, it's, it's a, it's a very easy to navigate site. And then the team stores, as I mentioned, it's just verbero.com forward slash, you know, Shamanad or evolve hockey. If people want to just look at a team store example, 
Um, and then anybody can, can shoot me a note anytime at andyofrobero.com if they want to find out more or figure out how to join the sales force or want to bring a team forth to us to, to put into a team store or, or have us, uh, you know, care for your on ice or off ice needs. Um, we're, we're, we're here to, we're here to help and, uh, you know, help with great product and help with great services. And, and, you know, we even, we give a 10% coupon back on sales through the team stores to the affiliation, to the affiliation. So, um, you know, it's, it's a really nice way to, to, to kick back to the programs as well. And, um, yeah, all in all, we're just, we're just uh, happy to connect and, and, and align with more, uh, with more brands and more, more people to help us spread the word. Absolutely. Well, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to come do the show and, uh, congrats on every, uh, every little thing that you've been up to lately with the company, the move, and I wish you all the best, uh, in the future. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Likewise. And, uh, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Special thanks again to Andy Sutton for stopping by and to you, the listener. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share the podcast however you listen to them. And uh, we'll see you next time on Hockey Talk with Ryan Hawk.